0: Let's turn in our Bibles to 1st Timothy chapter 6 tonight, 1st Timothy chapter 6. All right, let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you that you are here with us. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for eternal life, the power of the Holy Spirit. We ask as we read your word tonight that our hearts would be soft, that would be in that right place to hear what you would speak to us. Pray for those that need comfort tonight, God, that you would provide that comfort and that refreshment that can only come from you. Jesus, you're our living water. You're our portion. We look to you. We pray that you would captivate us, that you would arrest us, that you would take hold of us. We know that comes through a willful choice on our part. So we surrender afresh to you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Arrested. What has captured you or laid a hold of you? You think about being arrested. You are taken captive And as we look at this section of scripture tonight, I think God's heart is that he would want to lay hold of us, but it's something that we have to surrender to. There's really two streams that are flowing in 1 Timothy chapter 6, one of contentment and godliness in Christ, where he is our satisfaction, and the other is the love of money, trying to be satisfied with the things of this world. So there's really three things we're going to look at tonight, being arrested in contentment, arrested in money, that's a place that we can be held captive to is money, and then arrested by eternity, where our hearts are laying hold of, of eternity. This, this chapter is filled with great insight and great challenge for us. In verse 1 it says, Let as many bond servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. Paul is writing to those that would be slaves. It's translated for us "bond servants," which means slave by choice. But when you go back into the Greek language, it is referring to slaves. The culture was filled with those who were being forced against their will to be slaves, and in no way is God for slavery. It's not His heart that any would be slaves, but because this is a reality in the Church of Ephesus. What happens if all of the Christian slaves decide to mutiny against their masters? And what Paul is more concerned with is the gospel. People coming to know Christ as their Savior. So he's saying, slaves, if you're under the yoke of masters, give them honor. Give honor to your masters so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. How would that apply to us today? Is maybe you have a boss that's a real taskmaster. You're thinking, I don't have to respect them. I don't have to honor them. I don't need to listen to their wishes. Maybe you're not respected. Maybe you're not treated the, the way that you would like. And just say, I'm going to take this to heart and choose to honor them so that God is honored. When we honor the authority that God has placed above us, then, then God is honored. The dividing line here is whenever your authority asks you to do something that's contrary to the word of God, we must honor honor God above, above men. What's the attitude of your heart towards your boss? Is it one of honor? Is it one of God being glorified so his name can be glorified? So the doctrine that we believe in can be magnified? So if slaves are being called to this, how much more so should we be called to this in that place of saying, I'm going to respect the authority that God has given to me? Verse 2, it says, And those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. Teach and exhort these things. So some slaves would have masters who were believers, and their tendency might have been, well, because they're a believer, our brother, sister, in Christ, I'm not going to honor them, I'm not going to respect them. They'll give me the benefit of the doubt because we're both under the banner of the gospel. And Paul's saying, no, don't shortchange them, honor them as well, knowing that the benefit is going towards believers. So if you are fortunate enough to have a boss who is a believer, it doesn't make them perfect, you know, just because we're believers doesn't mean that we're perfect. But maybe you've developed an attitude of saying, hey, we're brothers and sisters in Christ, so... I can get away with being 15 minutes late, or I can get away with cutting corners. I I expect them to not hold me to a high standard. Then Paul speaks to that as well. So it's honoring bosses, whether they're believers or they're unbelievers. Paul's encouragement to Timothy in this is teach and exhort these things. I want you to, to teach and exhort this truth about work ethic. Remember that, who are you working for? Hopefully it's the Lord. That we're going to work and we're doing whatever our hands find to do unto the glory of God. Verse 3: If anyone teaches otherwise and doesn't consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness. In these next few verses, we're looking at how to be able to identify a false teacher. Would you be able to pick out a, a false teacher? Anybody that opens up a Bible, would you trust what they were saying? Anybody who is under a a Christian publisher or found in a Christian bookstore or on a Christian radio station or or podcast? You know, any friend that that is a believer, do you trust everything that comes out of their mouth? So he says, if anyone teaches otherwise and doesn't consent to, to wholesome words. So if someone isn't teaching in accordance to this work ethic that honors God, but also if their words are not of the Lord Jesus Christ. Are they speaking things that resonate with who Jesus is, his character, his nature, who he is, and to the doctrine which accords to godliness is the fruit of their teaching one of of godliness. He is proud describing the false teacher, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which envy, strife, and reviling evil suspicions. So how do we know that the false teacher is proud? Because he's putting his opinion over the word of God. A false teacher is not teaching the word of God, surplanting the word of God, replacing the word of God. That's the epitome of pride. So as you're looking at a false teacher, you should be able to see the pride in their life They probably claim to know a lot, but they know nothing. But what are they obsessed with? And this is fascinating to me. They want to divide the body. They're obsessed with disputes and arguments over words. Apparently, Timothy's dealing with individuals like this inside of the church, and under the name of of Jesus Christ, but you look at the fruit of their life, and they're they're obsessed with arguments. They're obsessed with division, and obsessed with dividing the body of Christ. Maybe you know somebody like that. And then from that, from these arguments, and these disputes, what comes? Envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, no good thing. Have you ever stopped and considered, what was the fruit of that conversation? I just invested an hour of my time right there, and what was the end of it? Well, was it envy and strife and division and arguments, or was it of Christ and his goodness and the unity of the body of Christ? Useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds, so their minds are corrupt, these false teachers have corrupt minds and they're destitute of the truth. You think of a forest fire going through, and the land becomes desolate. That's the life of a false teacher. You can't find the truth of God, and their lips are in their life. And here's their conclusion. They suppose that godliness is a means of gain. We need to be very careful about this, because I think it's really subtle, but it comes into our hearts and minds. If we live a godly life, that somehow that's going to result in monetary gain, financial gain. So if we take verses 1 and 2, and we're a good worker unto God, if you do your work unto the Lord, whether you have a believing boss or an unbelieving boss, that over time, that's going to result in a higher salary or promotion, or people are going to recognize you. Or if you choose to walk in sexual integrity and follow the Lord and be faithful to your vows, and somewhere in your heart you're saying, God, look, I'm walking uprightly in this area, so this is going to benefit me financially godliness is a means to gain or, or but lord i know it's only january 18th but i've been reading my bible every day in the new year and i'm planning on reading through the bible this year i'm walking with you and it's going to result in in monetary gain that's not what god promises and i think that you'll be put in a place where you're stumbled because it doesn't always work that way It doesn't always work that way. You think of Joseph's character. Where did his character get him? Thrown into prison and falsely accused. And sometimes in our lives, God allows suffering. And so godliness isn't a guarantee to gain. So why is it that we're godly? Why would we want to live a godly life? Because we've been saved by God's grace and our sins are forgiven. We want to walk with God. The blessing is in the relationship with him Not in the monetary gain. Think if you were preparing to get married and the only reason that you were getting married was for monetary gain. It's almost humorous, isn't it? That's not why you decided to get married. But what if that was your your motivation? We go that to a relationship with the Lord. God, I'm walking with you for a monetary gain. No, I'm not walking with you for a monetary gain. Hopefully, I'm walking with you because you're good, and you're kind, and you're gracious, and I want to be in relationship with you. And We never regret walking with the Lord, and we never regret godliness, but it isn't a guarantee to monetary gain. And you'll find a lot of teachers out there that tell you, if you walk with God and you have faith with the Lord, that it's going to result in a lot of financial prosperity. Now, financial prosperity is not necessarily bad. And we'll get into that in the rest of this chapter, but it is a wrong assumption of false teachers to think, well, because I'm living a godly life, then it's going to be the means to gain. It's going to be the gain of of more finances. For those in the Middle East right now that are following Christ, what does it mean for them to follow Christ? That they may be killed, right? What if someone receives Christ in an Arab context in the Middle East this evening? It means that they may be killed. And so when they receive Christ, there isn't this false understanding that, well, following the Lord is going to result in a lot more money in my pocketbook. The end of verse 5 says, from such withdraw. So if you find somebody that fits these things of a false teacher, they're dividing the body, they're destitute of truth, they're preaching that godliness is a means to gain, then go ahead and withdraw yourself uh, from them. Verse 6 Says now, godliness with contentment is great gain. Arrested by contentment, arrested by contentment, godliness with contentment, it is great gain. So, what is contentment? It's one of those words that we use a lot, but do we know what it means? It means to be fully satisfied. Fully satisfied. Some would think that contentment would be a negative thing. You know, we don't want to be content in our sin. That would be negative. If we're fully satisfied in our sin, that would be negative. But in a relationship with Christ, we can be fully satisfied. Godliness with contentment, then that is great gain. The Apostle Paul said in his life that contentment had to be learned. In Philippians chapter 4, he says this, Not that I speak in regard to need, for I've learned in whatever state I am to be content. Why? Why? Because contentment is not something that we're born with. It's not an attribute that we're born with to be fully satisfied. We see that in the the nature of a young child. So I have that inside of me, that selfishness, that unsatisfaction. So we have to learn contentment. I know how to both be abased and how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I've learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound. And to suffer need, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. A lot of times when God is blessing us, we say, why couldn't it be a little bit more? When is enough is enough? Well, just a little bit more. Well, if God's blessed with this type of car, well, it could be that type of car. If God blessed with this much financial provision, then it could be this much financial provision. If he's blessed with a house this size, then it could be a house of of that size. And there's a real art to saying, you know what? I know how to be full. I know how to enjoy what God has given to me. I can be fully satisfied right now in what the Lord has provided for me. And then also to be abased when the Lord chooses to take away. Say, okay, I've learned that it's okay that I don't have the blessing. I don't have the financial provision. I don't have the health in, in this season. It's, it's a time of difficulty. And Paul's saying, no matter what season I'm in, I've learned to be fully satisfied. And that's tough when it really comes down to it. The source is Jesus. Hebrews thirteen five says, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you godliness with contentment is great gain i can be content right now with what i have not more not less because of who jesus is and he's the source of my satisfaction so here you have false teachers that are saying the source of the satisfaction is more monetary gain and what paul is saying is jesus is the source of satisfaction are you satisfied are you content Would you say that contentment has arrested you? That contentment has taken hold of you? And it's a way of living? It's a a lifestyle? Saying, okay, Lord, I am content in you. I think it's a choice that we can make. It's something that we can press into throughout our lives in this evening to say, I want to be content in the Lord. In verse 7, For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing. Nothing out This is true Every baby that is born Is born with nothing monetarily Only their birthday suit You came into this world With no thing Nothing at all And it's certain When you leave You can carry nothing with you The expression is true You can't take it with you You can't But it's also true that you can send it ahead. What do I mean? You can lay up treasures in heaven. You can use earthly resources to invest in the kingdom of God. Jesus tells us that we then have treasure in heaven. And he encourages us to lay up our treasure in heaven. So the reason to be content, the reason to not get caught up in this rat race that I have to have more, is you can't take any of it with you. A lot of times when there's a lot left in a family inheritance, what does it do to the children and grandchildren? Causes a tremendous, ugly fight, doesn't it? Everybody starts fighting and worrying about all of this money. You really can't take it with you. You brought nothing into this world and you can take nothing out. This redefines our needs. It puts in perspective our needs and having food and clothing With these things we shall be content. If I was writing this passage, I would sure like if you have food and clothing and a roof over your head, be content, right? This isn't even a roof over your head. This isn't a heated room or an air conditioned room. It's simply food and clothing with those, be content. If you have food and you have clothes and you have Jesus, you have enough. God's saying, be content with that. Be satisfied in that. Take joy in the Lord in the midst of that. So that's the positive. Be arrested by contentment. Here's the negative, to be arrested by money. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare. This is a heart condition. Just like contentment is a heart condition, if you desire to be rich, if you put money as an idol to satisfy, you're going to fall into temptation And you're going to fall into a trap. You're going to fall into a snare. Why? Because if it's like, I got to have money, I got to have money, I got to have money, then it becomes much easier to fall into sin in order to get what you long for. Money does provide false advertisement. Money says if you have this, it's going to fix all of your problems. It is going to provide contentment in your life. It's going to fix your relational difficulties. But it's not true. That's only what Jesus can do. Money can't do that. So we have to examine our hearts and say, do I have a desire to be rich? Money is powerful. I remember on my eighth birthday, my Aunt Carolyn, she wrapped up eight one dollar bills, put them into a box with cut up pieces of newspaper, and had me hunt for these eight dollars. And even as a young kid, I was aware of money, and conscious of money, and What kind of things could happen with money, like candy, corn nuts, and sunflower seeds, and baseball cards? I'm digging through this box, I'm counting this money, I find the $8, and then I look at my aunt and my parents, and it's like I'm right there in the family room, I can remember it like yesterday, and I said, is that all? (laughs) Went from celebration to discipline really quickly. Right. The love of money, the desire for money, the desire to be rich is something that we wrestle with. And into many foolish and harmful lusts which drowned men in destruction and perdition. So lust says it's going to satisfy. If I have this, if I have this money, I'm going to be satisfied. But in reality, this lust is drowning us in destruction and perdition. And perdition means eternal judgment. How many people are lost for all of eternity? How many people reject Christ as our Savior because the love of money, the desire to be rich, is greater than their desire for Christ? Jesus broke it down this way. You can't serve God and money. You can't have it both ways. You've got to choose a master. You will be faithful to one. Is it God or is it money? Have we been arrested by this desire to be rich. Goes on to say, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Now we have to pay attention to this. What is the root of all kinds of evil? It's the love of money. So money is not evil. Some Christians have this attitude towards money where they say it's evil, so I should never have money. Or with money comes temptation, and the problem is our hearts, not the money. Money's a tool that can be used for God's glory, or can be used for great destruction, but it's what is my perspective towards it? Have I fallen in love with it? God's the only one that should have my love. God's the one who should have my adoration. He's the one that's the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And if I've given money that place in my heart, then that's going to lead to all kinds of evil. This is a colossal statement. It's huge. It has tremendous impact that all kinds of evil happens underneath the umbrella, the banner of the love of money you know people murder for money people engage in all kinds of wickedness simply for money the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil it goes on to say from which have strayed from the faith in their greediness this is one of the common phrases that paul uses in first timothy is to stray from the faith it has to be a possibility how many believers have been shipwrecked by the love of money they've strayed from sincere faith they've strayed from trusting in the lord and it's resulted in greediness and pierced them through with many sorrows so money money's something that we have to manage money's something that we have to use for god's glory but we don't fall in love with it because if we do it will result in being pierced through with many sorrows Money's a terrible master. Money's a terrible thing to be arrested to, to be captured to. Much more so, we would rather be captured by Christ, arrested by contentment. We go on to verse 11. The contrast to this is, but you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, and faith, love, patience, and gentleness. But you, O man of God, But you, O woman of God, but you, O child of God. We sang tonight, I am yours. What a beautiful truth to sing and declare that we belong to God. Since that is true, you are a man of God. You are a woman of God. You are a child of God. There's a contrast in our lives. Our lives shouldn't be defined by the love of money. Shouldn't be defined by the desire to be rich, but it should be defined by we're fleeing these things. We're fleeing the love of money. We're fleeing this attitude that godliness is a a means to gain. And we're running towards these virtues that the Lord lifts up. We're pursuing righteousness. You know what it's like to pursue something, don't you? To pursue a degree, to pursue a job, to pursue a physical challenge, to pursue your spouse, Those of you that are dating and you're you're pursuing that relationship, if you're married, hopefully we've never stopped pursuing that that relationship. And God's saying to Timothy, I want you to go after these things. I don't want you to go after money, to fall in love with money. I want you to go after righteousness. I want you to go after godliness and faith and love and patience and gentleness. In verse 12, fight the good fight of faith. Fight the good fight of faith. This is another one of those terms we use a lot, but what does it mean? What does it mean to fight the good fight of faith? This is speaking of our Christian life. This is speaking of our walk with the Lord. This is speaking of trusting the Lord. And it is a fight to go through this life and continue to trust him through all of the difficulties, to continue to walk with him, to not get overcome by the love of money. And the temptation of sin. And so Timothy needs to continue fighting. Fighting for his relationship with the Lord and his love for others. And fighting to stay in that place where he's depending upon God. Paul at the end of his life in 2 Timothy says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. That, that's the place that we want to be is to say, I wasn't perfect. I failed. I sinned. But I got back up and I continued to press in to my relationship with the Lord. And lay hold on eternal life. So you are rested by eternity to where heaven actually gets a hold of our hearts. Please hear this. This is the message of 1 Timothy 6. Something is going to get a hold of your heart. Something is going to arrest you. Something is going to get your attention and captivate you. We don't want it to be the love of money. We want it to be contentment satisfied in Christ, and we want to lay hold of eternal life. And as we lay hold of eternal life, then it lays hold of us. Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17 and 18. It says, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. So affliction is light, It's temporary, and it's working for our benefit. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, so we're not focused on just the things that we can see of this world, but in fact we're focused on what is unseen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but what the things which are not seen are eternal. What causes me to lay hold of eternal life is trials and difficulty. When things are going well and things are going smooth, I tend to focus on the things of this life. I tend to forget about eternity, that I'm racing towards eternity, that those around me are racing towards eternity. But when there's challenge, when there's death, when there's disease, when there's difficulty, when there's confusion, and there's fog, it causes me to focus on the things that are unseen. May the Holy Spirit cause us to lay hold of eternal life, to focus on the joy that's set before us, to understand in a greater way the glory of heaven, that we would desire more and more that All would know Christ, that all would be able to go to heaven and enjoy a relationship with the Lord. Are you in a season and time of difficulty? I mean, is it difficult to be here tonight? Difficult to focus upon the message? You are fighting the good fight of faith and you're saying, yeah, I'm just trudging forward. I'm trying to get through a a day. Be encouraged. If you're a believer, you have eternal life. That's what the Bible teaches us. John 3 tells us. That we have, we possess eternal life. And so that then encourages us. When the disciples were faced with the fact that Christ was going to be crucified, what did Jesus say to them? He said, let not your heart be troubled, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come and receive you again unto myself. Where was the source of comfort for the disciples? In heaven. I'm preparing a place for you. So don't let your heart be troubled. What is the difficulty that I'm going through tonight in light of eternity? Go ahead, describe it. Think of it. Put some terms on it. Man, this, this is what's difficult, and this is what's challenging, and this is where I, I lack answers. Then try to picture that difficulty in light of eternity. And we lay hold of eternity. So this is the stream we want to live in. Instead of in this stream of the love of money, We're in the stream of eternal life. To which you were called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Paul's exhorting here. And he says, Timothy, you are called to a good confession. You are called to fight the good fight of faith. You are called to lay hold of eternal life. In the presence of many witnesses. Timothy, you know God's work in your life. I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things. And before Christ Jesus who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate. Timothy, I'm calling you to this place in the sight of God. Timothy, I'm encouraging you to remember the good confession of Jesus Christ as he was on trial with Pontius Pilate, being accused, but yet he spoke nothing in return. Jesus was faithful. He fought the good fight. He finished the race. He had that good confession. That you keep this commandment without spot blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing. He says, Timothy, I want you to keep this commandment, this commandment of love, to be blameless, to be above reproach until the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Keep your eyes on Christ's soon return. Paul now gets overwhelmed with the goodness of God and he begins to describe the Lord as he thinks about the coming of the Lord, which he will manifest in his own time. When will Christ return? In his own time. He who is blessed and the only potentate, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone is immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. He comes back to this theme of riches and money in verse 16. He says, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty. For some reason, there's a tendency with wealth to result in pride or to result in haughtiness. A lot of times people feel like they've accumulated the wealth, that somehow it's their hard work or their ability or their ingenuity. Feel insulated from the world's problems because there's this amount of money in their, their bank account. And so Paul says, look, those who are rich, I want you to command them to not be haughty, to not be in that place. How do we make sure that we're not arrogant? By making sure we understand who Christ is. If we think about Christ and how he's described in verses 15 and 16, unapproachable light, immortality, the king of kings, the holy potentate, then who am I in light of that? Come on, who cares if you've got some money in the bank? Who is that? compared to Jesus Christ. For us to sit in that and to realize that, Lord, help me to not be be haughty in this present age, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God. If for some reason you feel like riches make you more secure, you need to trust what the Bible says, that riches are uncertain. We know this to be true. Deep down, we do, don't we? Money has a way of growing wings and flying away. I don't know how it does it, but it does, right? 2008, when we hit the recession as a country, I mean, people were reporting 50% loss in one day. Here they've saved and saved and invested, and all of a sudden, half of it's gone in one day, in one moment of the, the stock market crash. Riches are uncertain, so don't trust in them. Now, does that mean riches are evil? No. It's your attitude towards your riches. What are you going to do with the riches? Are you going to manage it for God's glory, or are you going to fall in love with it? Are you going to trust it? It's a terrible master, but a wonderful tool. It's uncertain riches, and so don't trust in the riches, but trust in the living God. Wouldn't you rather have your trust in God, not in a bank account? The bank account's going to fluctuate, but your trust in God's going to stay the same. He's the rock of ages. God, my trust is in you. You are faithful. And then I love this last phrase, and I think it really balances things out, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. So this proves the fact that the monetary world is not evil. God's provision is a sign of his loving care for us as a father, and he wants you to enjoy it. Man, if you can afford a bag of chips and salsa, enjoy it to the glory of God and don't feel bad about it, right? It's like, wow, this is wonderful. God, you're, you're so good. I'm, I'm gonna thank you for this. You don't have to feel bad about the home that you live in. Enjoy it for the glory of God and use it as a tool for lives to be touched for all eternity. Has God provided a vehicle for you that's reliable in this cold, snowy weather that we get? Then praise God. Enjoy it to his glory. Don't get haughty about it. Don't trust in it. Trust in the living God. Don't, don't be prideful, but enjoy it for, for his, his glory because it's his provision that he has bestowed upon your life. God's glorified when we enjoy the provision that he's given. Verse 18, speaking to the rich, still commanding the rich, let them do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share let them be rich in good works. So no matter what your bank account is, let's focus on being rich in good works Then be ready to give and willing to share. How do you know if you're arrested by money or arrested by eternity? If you're arrested by money, you will tend to see all of your physical resources as something that you hold with a closed hand. But if you've been touched by eternity, you will tend to see all of your resources, one that's held to an open hand, where you say, God, help yourself. I'm ready to give, and I'm willing to share. Just by the mere fact that we're Americans, we're rich compared to the rest of the world. This isn't about how much you give. It's not about a dollar amount, but it's about an attitude of the heart. Someone can be in absolute poverty and be in love with money, even though they don't have money. They're in love with the idea of money and the pursuit of money. Someone can live in absolute poverty and have an incredible heart of verse 18 that's ready to give and ready to share. One of the most humbling things is to go to Gulu, Uganda, spend time with Ugandan believers who live in a hut, and they insist on feeding you the best that they have. They have this down. They're ready to give, and they're willing to share. They want to bless you and love on you and show you hospitality. It's it's moving, and it's it's overwhelming. Have you ever considered why it is maybe that God has blessed you? If you look at your life and you go, man, I'm blessed. I can pay my bills. I can, you know, do that, and I don't have to necessarily worry worry about it. Yeah, I don't have a, a lot extra, but I'm able to pay my bills. God has really provided. God told, told Abraham, who was blessed financially, and says, I've blessed you to be a blessing. I've blessed you so that you could give and that you could share. Jesus said it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. And church, this is the answer to the greedy heart. Giving is the answer to... To overcoming the love of money and the desire to to be rich. It keeps our heart in check. God asks for us to give the tithe and to give the first fruits, not because he's broke, not because he's up in heaven going, I don't know how I'm going to support my work, but by us giving our first fruits to God, we're acknowledging that everything belongs to the Lord and it frees our hearts from greed It frees our hearts from the love of money. If you've come here for a while, you know our hearts on this. We don't take an offering. We want offering to be between you and the Lord as there's boxes out in the foyer and you can give on the the church's website. But in scripture, when we come to areas of giving, we want to teach it and we want to understand why God encourages us to give. Why he says here, be ready to give and to be willing to share. It's God's way of growing children. It's not God's way of supporting his work. He can do that without us. If you have children, a big part of teaching them and raising them is the ability to give, isn't it? We want them to have that heart because the most damaging thing for them is to be completely selfish. And so giving and sharing, being rich in good works, is the answer to overcoming a love of money. What happens when you give? Verse 19 storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold of eternal life. Going back to what Jesus taught, he says, lay up for yourself treasures in heaven because heart follows treasure. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Maybe you invested in some stocks at some certain point in your life you probably kept track of how that company was doing or how that mutual fund was doing. But if you don't have any money in that mutual fund anymore, if you don't have any money in that company anymore, you're not nearly as concerned with what happens. You're not nearly as invested. It is a spiritual foundational truth of God that heart follows treasure. So as we serve the Lord, as we give to his work, we're laying up treasure in heaven. God says that's going to matter. I don't fully understand how that treasure is going to impact us in eternity, but I trust that Jesus says it's important lay up treasures in heaven. You're storing up a good foundation to come. And by doing so, you're putting more of your heart and life in eternity. As you look at last year's finances, you know, sometimes we look back this time of year at 2016 finances. Have you looked at maybe what God allowed you to give to his kingdom? And go, wow, praise the Lord. That is awesome. Out of my whole entire budget, that's what I'm most concerned about is that, Lord, you allowed us as a family to give to these kingdom works. And go, wow, praise the Lord. And that's fun to be a part of. And then somehow that results in then laying up treasures in heaven. I don't know about you. But I need practical ways for my heart to be focused on eternal life. I need practical ways for me to lay hold of eternal life. So so serve him. Serve the Lord. Serve God in your time. Serve God with your talents and the resources that, that he gives to you. You know what the beautiful thing is? The roadmap for this is however the Holy Spirit leads you. It's not about percentages. It's not about what somebody else does. I don't think God's concerned if it's 5% or 18% or 3% or whatever. It's, it's not about the percent. It's not about the dollar amount. It's about the heart that says, God, I want to be in this place where my life's completely surrendered to you. I want to be arrested by eternity. I want to lay up that eternity. Lay blah, blah, blah. Can I buy a vow? I want to lay hold of eternal life. Verse 20. Oh, Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust. Church, guard what was committed to your trust. Your relationship with the Lord. Relationship with your family. Ministry that God has given to you. Being steward with the ability to love others. Here's Timothy, this young pastor that just wants to pack up and go home. It's to cash it in. Somebody could pastor better than he could. And God's saying, guard it. Guard what was committed to your trust. Avoid the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some have strayed from faith. Grace be with you. Amen. A lot of this chapter and a lot of what Paul is teaching Timothy are the conversations to avoid. There's a real art in knowing this conversation is going nowhere. I'm not going to indulge them on it. I mean, think about verse 20. Idle babblings, profane contradictions, which is falsely called knowledge. Don't even engage in that. Just, just avoid that type of conversation altogether. So as we end tonight, what are you arrested by? What am I arrested by? What has laid hold of me? Would it be contentment? Would we say, I'm arrested by contentment? I've learned contentment. Are we arrested by money? Are we arrested by this desire for money and this love for money and this false idea if I just had more money, somehow my life would be easier and better? Are we arrested by eternity? Is eternity laying hold of us and we're laying hold of eternal life. To sum things up, it's to be captured by Jesus, to be arrested by Jesus. But the last time I checked, Jesus didn't go around arresting people against their will. He didn't come and say, all right, Eric, I'm going to take you captive. I'm going to arrest you. You have no choice in the matter. You're coming with me. He has the power to do that, doesn't he? It'd be so easy for him to do that. But instead, he knocks. Instead, he whispers. Instead, he says, Eric, are you ready? Are you willing? You ready to get off the bandwagon of money and the love of money, the desire to be rich? You ready to surrender? How about contentment? How about you stop looking for the next thing? And you rest in, in my arms. How about you let me capture you? This is, I think, what we find in essence of the Old Testament phrase, bondservant, it was slave by choice. There would be Hebrews that were slaves, and they would say, instead of being set free on the seventh year, which the law had prescribed, you're such a good master. I want to serve you for the rest of my life. I'm a slave by choice. And they would become a bondservant. And their left ear would be pierced to symbolize that they had chosen to be arrested. And that's the heart that God wants us to have, to get to that place of saying, I know, Jesus, you're not going to force me. I know that you're not going to take me against my will, but I want to be with you. I want to serve you. I want to be a slave by choice. Let's stand together and let's pray this in. Jesus, would you identify our hearts? Would you identify the reasons that we're discontent? Would you identify that false thinking where we think godliness is a means to gain? Would you identify the love of money and the desire to be rich? Jesus, afresh, as we take communion, we want to surrender to you. We want to be arrested to you. We want to be captivated by you. So we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.